You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I talk with note investing expert, Dave Van Horn. We dive into some investing strategies that seem a bit complex when we talk about them in general terms. But towards the end of the episode, I asked Dave to give us three specific examples of deals that he's done that I think really help clarify what these strategies are and how they work in the real world. We also talk a bit about the current economic conditions, which means it's important to mention that we recorded this just before everything with COVID-19 really started. What we talk about is still very relevant with the changes that have come due to COVID-19 because the real estate market really hasn't changed that much yet. It certainly is going to. I expect that. We've had some guests on the show recently, like Neil Bawa, who mentioned that he expects this to change as well. But since real estate is generally a slow-moving market, not much has changed yet. So I think everything is still very relevant and very helpful. I know I really enjoyed my conversation with Dave, and he's taught me a lot, both through this conversation and also through his book. So I hope you guys enjoy and learn as much from this episode as I did. Let's jump right into today's episode with Dave Van Horn. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Dave Van Horn. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. Welcome. Feels good to be here. Looking forward to our conversation today because we're going to be talking about a topic that isn't talked about in real estate space as much as other strategies. And I know it's one we haven't covered yet here on the show. But before we get into the details of node investing, let's talk about your background, how you got into real estate. How'd you get to where you are today? For me, it was working in construction and I was living at my mom's house after college. You know, I was married and had a child and I would come home from work sweaty and grimy and kind of hated my job. And my mom was like, why don't you try your real estate? Literally how it started, I went and got a real estate license. And I was probably... I started when I was like 26 and just went on from there. And then... So I came at real estate investing from the realtor side, which is a little different. Now I had... I was handy though. I actually became a contractor and all that as well. When you worked in construction... Were you working in residential construction? So it was relevant to your real estate investing? Primarily residential and commercial. I worked for a painting contractor for a while. And then I started my own company. And today, my oldest son has a painting company. So what does your current real estate portfolio look like? Are you using any strategies other than just note investing? Uh, yes. Well, older and I like to say wiser. So maybe older is not the best word. Maybe experienced or seasoned or... <laughs> but um, actually, my single family residential portfolio is shrinking. I had gotten up to like 40 places and it's, I've been shrinking it a little bit, but on purpose. But I have a lot... My company owns several hundred houses at a time. So we might have you know several hundred REO properties. And we own thousands of mortgages, right? So it's not that we don't deal with a lot of properties or I don't own them in that way through my business, which is probably my largest investment. But, but I'm also an apartment investor, multifamily, done some commercial syndication. I've been syndicating over 20 years. So been involved in a lot of different types of projects. Everything from commercial development, new construction to you name it, pretty much mobile home parks, we've done storage, all kinds of stuff. So you've done it all? Not about all, but a lot. 
So as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I don't think the majority of people know of what node investing is or what the strategy is. And I think even fewer people are actually using it. I think most people are usually on the other side of notes where they're writing checks to the owners rather than collecting checks as note owners themselves. So what exactly is note investing? In the simplest form, it's being the bank. So there's all kinds of debt out there. I manage several mortgage investment funds, but there's plenty of auto debt, medical debt, student loan debt, credit card debt, just goes on and on and on. So my industry is a a trillion dollar industry. There's probably a good 8 trillion in first mortgages and probably close to a trillion in junior liens. So there's, and I'm in the one to four family residential space and we're nationwide, but there's commercial notes, there's unsecured notes. It just goes on and on. There's a lot of categories and asset classes that the average person might not know about, but they exist and they've been around a long time. Who is this strategy good for? Does it have to be as a business or is it something that a, an individual investor can do? Anyone can do the business. Sometimes I'll give examples of you know, like my heating and air conditioning guy. One time I was asking him, Hey, did you ever think of financing the installation of the units? And he's like, Well, there's a company that does that. And I was like, Yeah, I know. Did you ever think of owning that company? So you can invest in what you know. So what he ended up doing was he would get a deposit for a heater or air conditioning unit. Then he would install it and finance the labor. And you know, if they don't pay him, he could turn it into collections or put a mechanics lien or and by having financing available, he can actually sell more units, have more service contracts, and the service contracts increase the value of his business. So you can invest in what you know in the note space and do very well. And I have a dentist buddy in Dallas, Texas, does the same thing. He, him and an orthodontist teamed up and they, um, I think their IRA accounts even got involved. I think they might own the company. But his finance company actually grew to be worth more than his dental practice. So he's financing dental work for many other dentists that were friends of his too. So his company provides financing for dental work. Now they don't have the same collateral as a heating and air conditioning guy. I don't know what you do if they don't pay you. It's not like, well, you're going to go rip the fillings out, but the but you get the idea. So you can invest in a field of what you know. In that case, it's similar to credit card debt. You know, They know the default rate on dental debt. So there's all kinds of financing. There's financing to install a swimming pool. There's financing to you know whatever. Everything you can see right now from your seat has been financed at some point, and people just don't really notice it, right? I, I always say we're all in the note business. You just don't realize you are. You're paying for everything from your furniture to your construction of your property to everything around you has been financed, unless it, it grows. Unless it's <laughs> even that, even crops are financed, right? So everything's been financed, just about. It's all about that. In the case of the heating and air conditioning company, how is something like that, how is he going to be able to fund his payroll if he's financing it? Where does that funding come from? Well, it depends how he goes about it. I mean, he could have a business line of credit. He could put a line on his house. He could utilize his IRA account if his IRA account owned an entity that was the company. You know, so there's a lot of different verticals there. He could have a money partner, just like anything else. You know, there's a million ways to do that. And so is it really just an arbitrage of the interest rate? So he's charging a higher rate to the end customer versus what he's paying on his home equity line of credit, say? Oh, yeah. That would be typical. Yeah, he could borrow the money out of his life insurance policy. There's a million places to tap into to do that. And so do you see people using this strategy to lend on single family or small residential rental properties? 
I started with owner financing, trying to buy deals with owner financing. You know how you do the We Buy Houses business? I did that for a little bit. I would make multiple offers on the same property. I'd be like, here's my cash offer. Here's an offer if you hold the mortgage. Here's an offer if you hold a second. Here's an offer if I bring in hard money. I just had multiple offers based on the type of financing. Even when I sold properties, I would sell a property with a seller second. I would throw in a seller assist. Basically, an investor buddy could buy a property from me, one of my rentals. He'd pick it up from me with like no money out of pocket, still cash flow, that kind of thing. And then I'm cash flowing off a property I no longer own. So yeah, I've done that for years. And is seller financing the most common way to do that in the rental space? Yes. There's two note worlds. There's the seller finance note world. And then there's the note world I'm in today, which is the institutional note world. So like all the loans that we bought, we won't buy seller finance loans. We won't buy contract for deeds or things like that. We just buy bank originated paper, you know, the Bank of America, Wells Fargo type stuff. We buy from the government agencies. We buy from HUD and Fannie and Freddie. The seller finance world is a completely different world. Is that because the loans usually stay with the seller? There's actually a market for that. There's actually trade desks that buy seller finance paper, colonial funding. There's plenty of them. Interesting. And so are people investing in your business or in your funds as an asset class and they're expecting a return from the interest that you're getting paid back? In our funds, you're usually investing in a... We're basically pulling capital from high net worth investors and then we go and buy pools of mortgages. So they're backed by the pools of mortgages and then we pay a preferred return. We've been doing that for the last 13 years. Of course, it's going to vary from deal to deal. But what returns are you generally seeing in note investing, both on the side as the note owner and on the side of the private investor that's lending you the money for this strategy? So there's a note investor, and and it varies with the market, right? So note values are in direct correlation to real estate values. So if you're in an up real estate market, the cost of notes are up. And that means the yields are less, right? So the right now, most yields on residential mortgages to the note Older, like a small person, small guy, you know, investor would probably be in the eight to fifteen percent range. Usually, it's right around, it's right below hard money rates. Typically, for us as a note fund, obviously, we're doing probably better than that. You know, we pool capital, we raise capital from four percent to eleven point six percent, depending on liquidity. So we have multiple options. You know, we have a sixty-day liquidity, a six-month, a one-year, a three-year, that kind of thing. Our investors can compound as well. So that's why there's a variation in rates. But we're typically on first mortgages that are non-performing that we invest in. Our yields are normally between 18 and 22%. On junior liens, they're very common to be north of 30%. You just, we just can't get enough of them. Can't buy you know, unlimited supplier. When it comes to reperforming loans, RPLs, that are usually in our liquidity funds, you know, our cost of capital is around 5 but we have a coupon rate north of 12 So we're, we're making that arbitrage between 5 and 12 That's how we make money. Just like in our non-performing funds, our cost of capital is right around 9-ish and our yields are 18 to 22 That's how we make money. For those who aren't aware what non-perform means, can you explain <laughs> what that is? It means they don't make their payments. Well, yeah. A non-performing... Typically, we're talking about first mortgages that are non-performing just means they haven't paid in more than three months, four months, and they start to go out non-performing. And then do you generate the return by foreclosing on those properties? It's a combination, modifications, or yeah, I mean, on occasion, you're taking back properties. It depends whether they're occupied or not. You know, there's a lot of variations there. And junior liens are a different animal as well. The senior lien status is actually more important than, say, equity into determining outcome. And with junior liens, very statistical. First mortgages is a little different. It's more about sticks and bricks and geography and location, things like that. 
I was a bit surprised to hear that the returns for the smaller investors were as high as they were, given that mortgage rates are usually four to five percent. I was surprised to hear that they were north of eight to fifteen percent. Yes, I mean usually first mortgages, unless it's like you're probably looking at it compared to a newly originated first mortgage with perfect credit, perfect you know eight hundred credit score, and all that kind of thing. Yes. They're a lot lower coupon, right? In the seller finance world, they tend to be higher than that. And the commercial notes tend to be higher than that. But a lot of our notes that we sell are were once defaulted, now reperforming mortgages. So it's more of a scratch and dent category that pays a higher yield. You mentioned that you've been doing this for about 13 years now. So that puts us about back at 2007 timeframe. That's when our company started, it was in 2007. So was that right before the crash or right after? It was before it. We were still in an up market. And with distressed debt, there's a time lag. So a lot of the assets we buy have been delinquent for a while. So we really didn't feel the impact of the crash until probably a couple years after. What was that like for your type of company? It was a little scary at first because we bought all equity deals. We started out in the junior lien space. We didn't even buy first mortgages. We were only buying second mortgages. And we would only buy second mortgage covered by equity. So... uh Obviously, the equities fell out of our portfolio. It was probably the best thing that ever happened to us because what we learned was equity doesn't determine outcome. So on an equity junior lien, we were exiting a you know a favorable exit on 9 out of 10 assets. And when the equity fell, we're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? There's not enough collateral back in our portfolio. But what we found was that doesn't dictate the outcome. So we actually learned that we were overpaying for equity deals. And we were making just as much money almost on the partial equity and no equity junior liens. So by that, I mean, you could buy a, a partial equity junior lien that's current on the first, you're going to get out of 7 or 8 out of 10 instead of 9 out of 10, but you're paying a third of the money to buy them. That was, so we actually started selling off the equity and we made most of our money on partial equity and no equity, which is a concept for people to get their mind around. But So it was the greatest thing that ever happened to us. Here's a good analogy for that. If I have a you know, $100,000 property and I have you know, an $80,000 first mortgage and all of a sudden the property falls in value to 60000 you know, but they're paying 1000 a month rent. Does it really matter? Well, it only matters if you're forced to sell the property. Now, could your rent go to nine seventy five or nine fifty? Maybe. That's not really what happened in the crash. right? We didn't really see rents fall dramatically. Well, maybe a little bit. It only became a problem if you're forced to liquidate. Well, it's the same way in the note business. If you're forced to liquidate the portfolio at a fire sale, yeah, sure. Hard to get the value out of it. So it was a valuable lesson for us. It's just like you know, banks only understand collateral and they don't have a high default rate. My whole portfolio is defaulted, right? It's different. Uh, I'm in the collections business. I'm really not in the lending business. The bank's in the lending business. So it's a different model. It's, and they might not have the data on collections. They have the data on lending. So the collateral is real important to them. But even bankruptcy assets, they tend to be risky for folks that don't understand bankruptcy, but we make very good money on bankruptcy. And banks tend to lump them all in this one category. So given that you're more in the collections side of the world, business, yeah. yeah, the world, what are you seeing in today's market? Are you seeing things in the delinquency area start to pick up? Or are we still, is the market still <laughs> going strong? Or where do you think we are on the cycle? That's funny you say that. I mean, people say, well, what's going to happen if there's another downturn? And we kind of laugh at that because we go into a buying frenzy. It's like 
in a down market, the non-performing note space takes off. In an up market, I deal with commercial notes. I have a separate fund that invests in commercial notes and they boom in an up market. And then PPR booms in a down market. So some people go, well, that's risky. I'm like, yeah. And which one do you like? I like them both. I don't worry about it. I'm going to make money in both markets. By having both, it sounds like you're well diversified. You're, yeah, they're counter cyclical to each other. So it's kind of like it, it's irrelevant. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but it's commercial uh, lending side. It's a little different. The collateral is different. It's different asset class. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. I understand both. It's just, you know, it's different data and, and it reacts differently to the market. Yeah, you made a good point that right now it's probably tough for your collection side of the business where whereas when things go bad, you can go on a shopping spree and start buying all kinds of assets for your business at pennies on the dollar because that's really when you guys start to make all of your money, correct? Well, believe it or not, we're doing really phenomenal. We've bought more product than we ever have. But in a down market, there's just an abundance of product and it's really cheap. And then when the market goes back up, you know, high tide raises all ships. So a lot of times you'll hear frustrated retail note investors going, oh, you know, notes are so expensive. But right now, I, I can't complain. I'm getting awesome execution on selling of assets that we've had in our portfolio, right? Now I can go, well, when I go to buy, it's a little more expensive. The margins are a little thinner. It's true. I mean, I can't argue that. But what am I complaining about? How my portfolio's value went through the roof or am I complaining about it's a little tighter to buy? The person that's really complaining is the person that doesn't have a portfolio that went through the roof. They're complaining. They're trying to get into the business and everything's expensive. But it's the same way in regular real estate as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So are you able to use what you're seeing in your business from a delinquency rate perspective? If you're seeing delinquency rates start to pick up, can you then use that in your personal real estate investing to maybe, I don't want to say time, but start to consider maybe not making acquisitions because the economy might be turning, whereas somebody who doesn't have access to that delinquency data might just continue to buy? We buy a lot of data. We're almost like a data company. So we have a lot of internal data on how we execute, but we also utilize external data. And we're looking at the same data that any real estate investor is looking at. Because if we buy an asset today, it might take a while before we have to go through a foreclosure process. We have a whole matrix on timeline and cost. So various states are different. You know, like Northeast might take longer than, say, Texas or Georgia, which might only take a couple of months. So you definitely have to weigh that in. But the market already does that. They build it into their pricing a lot of times. So, But we're looking at all that. We're looking at population growth, probably the, and the economy. The biggest economic factor for our business is jobs. Because there's four main reasons people default, and it's death, divorce, job loss, and medical. So jobs tend to be the big one. And back in the crash in 07, 08, unemployment was pretty high. That was the real driver then. Besides all the crazy loans that were underwritten. But you know, when you start lending out at 125 loan to value, and unemployment ticks up, what do you think is going to happen? So in your book about note investing, you talk about how people can squeeze more profits out of the deals they're already doing by utilizing creative offers and multiple financing strategies. Can you talk to us a bit about that? That was one of the things that I learned early on because I was pretty much a blue collar guy that come from a lot of means or anything. And you know, when I got into real estate and contracting and renovating all these different things, I was on my way to have started out as buying one house a year. Then it became I want 20 free and clear. Then it became, I want to have 100 houses. And then it became, I want to get into apartments, multifamilies. You know, it was like that typical real estate investor mindset. But what I started to figure out when I got to about 40 properties and I was a property manager and I was in court every week and I was managing other people's properties. And then I was also a lender. I quickly realized that one was more efficient than another and one was less headaches than the other. And it really came down to when I look back at you know, how I built wealth over the years, it was through leverage. 
you know, what can you leverage that's going to really maximize your personal life or your business life in the next 6, 12 months, whatever that is. So you start to look at it. For me, I was leveraging capital. I was leveraging my skill sets. I was leveraging... You know, I had the MLS and I'm a contractor. All I needed was capital. And when I first started out, it was through credit card. I was using credit cards to access money. I would buy a house with a credit card, fix a house up with a credit card, move a tenant in, refinance it, pay the credit cards off, that kind of thing. Then I started doing lines of credit you know, off my properties. And, and then I became the lender. So it's, it's really all about leverage and tax advantages, I think. I had gone to college. I was an accounting major for three years. So I didn't become an accountant, but I learned enough to be dangerous and to realize that every dollar I saved in taxes was another dollar to invest, right? It wasn't rocket science. And I've kind of followed that mantra all the way through. How can I save on taxes? How can I leverage to the best of my ability? Not leverage in a bad way. I mean, leverage can work in both directions. You know, I don't want to act like uh, you just leverage for the sake of leveraging or anything. But we can leverage a lot of things. It could be education. It could be a JV partner. It could be all kinds of things. Technology doesn't have to be just capital. It could be human capital, right? It could be, you know, all these things are important. At what point in your investing did you realize that you wanted to go into the note investing business? Was there a tipping point that you were just like, I've had enough with maybe rentals or flipping or whatever it might have been? And you were just, I want to go into the note business and go all in on that. What did that look like? Kind of happened by accident. It's funny that you say that. First of all, I'm a big proponent of real estate investing and I'll probably always invest some way in real estate. But it was funny when we started the note company, we actually had a short sale business and we opened the short sale business and the note company in the same building. In fact, the sign on the building said this name of the short sale company. Well, that company obviously closed and the note thing just happened to take off. We didn't know what was going to work. I mean, we started out with four mortgages and it was really one grand slam, a home run, and two we lost money on. So if we had only bought two mortgages, I wouldn't be on this call. We just happened to be lucky, made money on two of the assets and and just kept going. And then, you know, once we kind of saw that it worked and perfected it with our own money, then we started to raise other money. And that was one of the reasons, especially my one partner teamed up with me. He knew I raised capital for commercial real estate and he knew I had a big audience and a big capital base. So he kind of hit me up to come in and help raise money for note space, which is a lot harder than raising money for something tangible like apartments where I can show you properties or I can show you a blueprint or like totally different, more intangible. Kind of like I don't say selling insurance, but you know, it's like an intangible thing. It's a note, you know, what's that <laughs> what's that look like? And note investing, it's it's one of those things that not that's not necessarily super complex, but it can be. And so to explain that to somebody and get them to fully wrap their head around the concept and understand what they're putting their money into, that's such an, another aspect of it that I think is probably difficult for people. We tend to do better, not that we can't deal with the general public, but we tend to do better with you know, a lot of times real estate investors because they understand mortgages, they understand properties, they understand hard money. You know, We're very similar in that regard. Somebody invested in a hard money fund, it's a note fund. It's a commercial note fund, the short-term commercial note. So we're in, in the same similar space. People can get their mind around that. How do the tax benefits of note investing relate to those you can receive in real estate? Because obviously, one of the biggest benefits of investing in real estate is, is the tax benefits. So how does that translate to note investing? Not as well. Note investing has different advantages. It doesn't have depreciation. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. Could you get tax breaks if you own a note in your qualified plan or self-directed IRA? Yes. So there's advantages that way. But it is very passive and it also has liquidity. So a lot of times, you know, I invest in a lot of different things. In fact, I run a high net worth investment group and we invest in all kinds of alternatives. I'm an investor too, right? I look at short term, long term, midterm, 
multifamily investing, well, that can be a five or 10 year wait. And I can also be in a hard money fund that might be a year. And like we fit into a 60 day to three year category. And some funds have liquidity and some funds don't. There's a lot of different things to look at uh, when you're looking at some of the alternative asset classes, especially that aren't, you know, I invest in, there's all kinds of things. Uh, for example, there's life settlements. Life settlements aren't tied to the market. They're tied to mortality. So you can find a category to invest in that you can be diversified and then it has a different you know, makeup as to, to what it does. And so it's really, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, I invest in ATM machines. That's the smallest piece of real estate with depreciation, with cash flow. So there's depreciation on ATM machines? Oh, big time. Yeah. Interesting. And you're investing in that business now as a, almost as a play on real estate? It is real estate. You own a small piece of real estate. There's ATM funds. Interesting. You invest in a fund. Yeah. Very interesting. So what for someone who's listening to the show, a lot of our audience is newer investors. They've probably heard of hard money, but they might not know necessarily what a hard money fund is. So could you please explain what a hard money fund is? Hard money or private money is... You know, hard money is just more of an institution doing a loan for a construction loan on a usually on a residential house. So if you went down to the bank and said, I wanted to borrow money to, to fix up this beat up house that wasn't really financeable through traditional means, most banks would say no unless you had unless you were going for a construction loan and you were a general contractor with experience, they don't want to lend to you. That's why a private lender comes in or a hard money lender comes in is they're gonna charge higher rates and stricter terms, maybe even with a draw schedule for repairs, and they'll lend you money to acquire or fix up or both particular property. So so it's really a short-term commercial note and mortgage. And so we've talked about note investing sort of abstractly here, and I'd love to dive into two examples of an actual note deal that you've done, if we could, one being good and one being bad. And I'd like to start with the good. What are the details of a good deal that you've done in the note investing space? How did it come together? And maybe what did the numbers look like? So I, I did actually put together a couple, you know, just short, quick ones that I could blow through. But I normally don't look at an individual note. We look at how a pool does. So I and then I and what I did was I I said, eh, let me get a couple examples. So the first one is a junior lien where you typically exit through the borrower. And I'll show you what one of those looks like. And then I was going to show you a first mortgage that wasn't so well. And first mortgage is you're typically exiting through the property. So I'm going to show you, you know, like you said, a good deal and not so good deal. And then I was going to maybe even run through a quick small pool example. And that's really what we look at is in most cases, we're looking at, you would look at a deal or look at one house. We're really looking at a pool. And, uh, and I'll show you what that kind of looks like. This was a junior lien in Milton, Massachusetts, and the original note was $76,500. And this was a second mortgage, and we paid $14,610 for that. And it was a 15-year loan, and the payment on it was just under $700 a month. It was $698.34. And the interest rate on it was 7.25%. And the payoff on this, because it was non-performing, was $84,594. So the payoff was actually higher than the original loan amount, right? Because they're delinquent. They were $12,570 in arrears. The fair market value of this property at the time was $450,000. And the first mortgage was $370,000. So you can see that's a second mortgage that wasn't completely covered with equity at this time, but they were current on their first mortgage. So in this particular case, the husband had gotten injured and he was unemployed for over a year. So what we did was you know, we do an outreach campaign. So sometimes the mail campaign, phone campaign, door knock service, all those types of things. But 
we got kind of lucky on this one. That's why it was pretty much a good deal is because he called in right away after he had gotten contacted. And this guy wanted to stay. He had two children and, you know, he had the homeowner was back to work as a police officer. And he was hoping to get his payment around 500 a month because that's what he felt was affordable. So a lot of this is an affordability play when you're doing a modification. And so what we did was we were able to extend the term to a 30-year amortization. We lowered the interest rate down to 6.5%. His wife actually put $5,000 from her retirement account towards the arrears. Remember I said it was like 12000 and something in arrears? She was able to access... So you're allowed to access your retirement account penalty-free if you're in foreclosure. A lot of people don't know that, right? And then what we did was after we got it reperforming, we turned around and sold this note for 43000 you remember if we paid 14 something for it. So just a quick recap on this. We sold a note for 43. We had paid 14610 The monthly payments we received, because we collected some, it was about $1,498 in, in payments. We received 5000 in the arrears from her retirement, right? We didn't really have any legal fees on this one. And so our net income was $49,498. Well, we did this in five months. So what's the rate of return on that? It's actually off the charts. It's like 239%, right? So it's, I hate to even say that because it's like so far off the reservation. You, know, it's, you start to not be believable. So you get the idea how now that's a junior lien, that's a knock it out of the park. It wasn't highly contested. There wasn't a lot of legal fees, right? That's, that's about as good as it gets, right? So then we have a first mortgage. This one was in Oakland, Tennessee. The original note was $85,000 and we paid $31,875. So the first thing you notice is when you buy a first, the cost goes up, right? It's not like buying a junior lien. Significantly more money to get into a deal. This was a 30-year mortgage, 360 months. Payment was $706.99. The interest rate was 9.375. The note payoff was $92,512. So they were $15,766 in arrears. Fair market value of this was $45,000, and there were back taxes of $1,501, and it was vacant. So, what is the big red flag there? That the fair market value is only $45,000. So, what had happened there was the original note was $85,000, and we paid $31,875. Well, it was, did you ever hear of getting a bad broker price opinion or getting out to the property and finally getting inside it and realizing it's trash or whatever. So that can happen, right? So that's kind of what happened in this deal. We thought it was worth 85000 or more. Turns out it's worth 45000 So, So how did this shake out? So for us, after completing the foreclosure, we got a realtor to go buy and do a BPO, broker price opinion. And then we got a contractor to bid a full renovation and it came back at 19000 and we decided that the best course of action was to renovate it and make it try to market it to like a first time home buyer. And we were lucky we received an offer three weeks after the renovation for $74.5. And it was a case where the buyer was purchased in it for his daughter. This deal, it wasn't as favorable as the first one, but this is how it shook out. So we had a total income of $74,500. The note cost was $31,875. We have to add in the renovation of nineteen grand. We had back taxes of $1,501. We had some legal, $2,196 in legal. We had some realtor fees from the sale, which was $3,725. So our net income was $16,203. And we did this one in 12 months. So our ROI on this though, it was still 50.8%. So this was a tight deal and the renovation kind of got us out of the tight deal. 
but it wasn't as sweet as like a junior lien, like in the first scenario. So this is a deal where we were exiting through the property. Now, do they all end up being super and they all end up being horrible? No. I mean, we have ones that, you know, we make bidding on one today. It was pretty crazy. You know, we paid, I think, a buck 30 for it. The after repaired value is over 500 grand on the thing. I could probably sell it. At, I'm trying to sell it at the foreclosure sale for 310. So if I get a 310 on a buck 30, that's knocking it out of the park right out of the gate. But they're not all like that. I mean, we just tend to win more than we lose. So that gives you a little bit of color on that. And I did a quick pool case study just to give people color. And this is on a junior lien pool that we had done last year, this past, you know, 2019. We closed on like 700 assets at junior liens with an unpaid principal balance of $36 million on the pool. The loan to value was 51%, and the combined loan to value was 73%. Just keep in mind it's junior liens. And we do a normal, you know, we do lean security check where we're checking with RealQuest, we're checking fair market values, we're checking with Universal Credit to do credit checks, we're going to Pacer, which is a bankruptcy scrub, we're doing our analytics, our proprietary stuff in in house, and then we're overlaying our cost, right? Whether it's the cost of capital, personnel, overhead, servicing, legal, all those things. Legal is probably our biggest expense next to cost of capital. So on this particular deal. Pretty much the summary was our expected revenue was 7.327 million. We had about 790 grand in expenses. Our purchase cost was 4.778 million, and we were expecting the gross proceeds of 1.758 million, less the cost of capital, which is 556,000. So our net proceeds was just over 1.2 million. That's the kind of deals we're really looking at. We're really not looking at how does one asset do. It's really how did that portfolio do. If that makes sense in most of our cases. And so is that mostly because of size? The individual assets are much smaller in scale. I mean, it, even though that was a home run deal, I mean, to make that material and grow a real business, you got to do a lot of those. Whereas with the pool, you could do one, two, three of those, and it starts to get pretty big in size. Well, right. I mean, you could tell, okay, for these 700 junior liens was just under 5 million. You know, we recently did a trade of, it was right around 30 million first mortgages, and it was only 145 loans big difference, right? So it takes a lot less personnel as well. Whereas those junior liens, that would take probably two asset managers to handle 700 junior liens, where it would only take, well, one asset manager can handle over 100 million of first mortgage to manage. So big, big difference in numbers. And so I want to go back to your first deal. So as you were talking through that, the first thing that popped in my head was that this is, you know, and to relate this back to real estate, is that it's a flip. It was a flip of a loan. Is it similar in the sense of like flipping a house is flipping a loan? Exactly. I mean, we often say notes are versatile. Anything you can do with a house, you can do with a note. So you can flip the note, you can rehab the note, you can sell a piece of the note, you can mark the note up and sell it. You know, there's all kinds of things. You can borrow against the note, called a collateral assignment, a note mortgage. So there's just about anything you can do with a house, you can do to a note. So really, if you think about it, we're just we're buying you know banged up paper and we're rehabbing it. We're rehabbing the paper like you would rehab a house. And then you know, of course, once it gets some seasoning, then it becomes worth par again almost. I mean, that's one of the beauties of you know we have a liquidity fund that all it does is buy reperforming mortgages that were once delinquent. You know, just sometimes the asset goes up in value. We call it phantom appreciation. It's not like appreciation like a property, but it, here's what I mean: say it had partial equity back in it. Now, all of a sudden, the market goes up and has full equity backing it. Well, we didn't really do anything. The market did. Or we have an asset that's been paying, and now all of a sudden, it has pay history. It's been paying for a year, or it's been paying for two years. 
Well, just pay history alone will increase the value of the asset. So I can have a, a re-performing mortgage sometimes where I, I could collect payments on it for two or three years and actually sell it for the same thing I could sell today. Well, that's kind of a unique characteristic. Yeah. I'm glad we were able to walk through those three different examples. I think it provided a lot of clarity. I think the abstract conversation was really good, but I think being able to see actual deals and how it starts from the beginning, works through it to the end, I think that's going to be really helpful for everyone listening to the show. Now, my next question is one that I like to ask people who I know are both a real estate investor and a real estate agent, because there are a lot of varying opinions on the topic. And I want the audience to be able to hear all sides of it from different points of view. So do you think new investors should get their real estate license to invest in real estate? Has it been beneficial enough to make it worthwhile? Or is it even necessary? For me, it's been very beneficial and been an agent over 30 years. In the beginning, I was a regular agent, probably for about 15 years. And then I started to get smart in my old age. I started to get multiple streams of income from the business. So I actually ended up owning my own title company. I did property management. You heard earlier, I owned a painting company. I used to do some mortgage stuff as well. So I was paid multiple times. I even sold insurance. So at that point, I was like, I'm getting multiple verticals out of the similar client base. So there's more than one way to do the business. But really, the biggest factor for me has been availability, access to the MLS. Today, I'm one of the biggest referral agents. You sell, we'll typically sell, we could sell hundreds of properties. Well, I can refer all them to other agents and get paid a fee without even doing the work. Today, I'm a horrible agent. I'm a great referral agent. But the big advantage is really tax advantages. Because as an agent, you can have unlimited passive losses. So that can offset earned income. Well, that's a big deal if you're a high income earner. Yeah. So I actually, I'm licensed in the state of Massachusetts as a real estate agent. I don't practice, but similar to you, I do referrals. I'm nowhere near the scale that you do. I don't do hundreds yet, but it's a great side benefit of it. Any rentals I buy, even if they're out of state, anything I do, really, I can earn the referral fee. Any friends and family, I'm able to do the same thing. So I think that's a benefit of having your license that investors don't always look at. You're also going to find deals. One of my favorites was always, you know, obviously the handyman, estate, but even administrators. I used to love administrators because if that's a nursing home scenario, they don't care what they get for the house. All the proceeds are going to the nursing home. So there are certain opportunities in there if people are paying attention. You know, I'd look at days on markets. There was one time at one point in my life, I was sending out letters of intent to any property that was on the market a long time. I just send out letters of intent. And believe it or not, I'd get hits and then people would entertain my crazy offers, you know? So you know, it's like anything. You just, if you want to work at it, there's plenty of deals out there. And so, were you sending out those letter intents without ever seeing the properties? Oh, yeah. And you were just sending super low ball offers and I'd send all kinds of low ball crazy stuff. And every now and then, somebody would hit on it. <laughs> That's interesting. I hear people sending postcards and, you know, hoping somebody will call them back. Then they have a conversation, see what they'll sell for. I did it years ago and I would just do it by fax. I'm sure there's a way to do it today that's probably streamlined or something, but. I would just fax around offers. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder why more people aren't doing that. You just cut out the middle and it's the same end result. Ultimately, you're making an, a lowball offer that you're hoping somebody will buy. That's kind of what led me to the note space. I, there were a couple of things I liked about it. It was One was anytime I could buy something at a discount with a high yield with collateral appealed to me. And then I also liked that I was ahead of everybody. So what I mean by that is, let's take the sheriff's sale or the list of of houses at the sale, right? Well, when you buy the note, you're ahead of that list. You're ahead of the sale. You're ahead of the we buy houses people. But it's very similar if you're doing a modification with a borrower. You do have a captive audience though. But in the we buy houses business, you're really doing the same thing. You're really figuring out what to do in someone's living room 
based on the equity in the property. But then when you leave, there are competitions coming up the walk to be, you know, the second we buy houses person's coming or something. But so I, um, what I like about the note business, not saying there's no competition, there is, it's just different and not as, not as much. The sheriff sale, like, you know, the attorney for the bank is my attorney. So most people that are going to the sheriff sale, they're going, walking into a bidding situation, which that never really appealed to me much either. I don't like being in a live auction trying to get assets I haven't seen inside of, right? I'd rather buy the REO. I bought many an REO in my earlier days. So how about some of the designations that you have, like the CRS designation, which is the Certified Residential Specialist, or GRI, which is the Graduate of Realtors Institute? Are those helpful as a real estate investor, or are they more for building a successful business as an agent? Good question. Well, CRSs are the top 5% of all agents. And there's about 2 million agents in the US. And I'm outside Philadelphia. There's over 10,000 agents in Philadelphia. So what are you going to do to set yourself apart if you are an agent? You know, you definitely have more education. You've done a lot of volume or you can't get the designation. So, but it's also a good network. Like, say I was moving to Hawaii and I wanted the, one of the best agents, I would just look in the CRS.com and get a top agent anywhere in the US. Now, does that mean they're going to be an investor friendly agent? Not necessarily. Just like they're not an REO agent. Like, when I need an REO agent, I might go to reoredbook.com or something like that. So, it's really having the right tool for the right thing, just like anything else. There's multiple types of agents. You need the right agent for what you're trying to do. Is that CRS database that you mentioned, is that accessible by the public or is that only for CRS designation holders? No, anybody can go to CRS.com and pull up a a top agent in any major area. And are you familiar of any databases that are for agents that are investor-friendly or specifically focus on real estate investors? Not really other than the REO networks. There's a lot of pay networks for REO agents as well. There's some platforms that REO agents belong to to get bank-owned properties to list. REOredbook.com is just a it's just like CRS.com. It's just a database of REO agents. Now, you know, does it hurt? You know, most REO agents have a list like a buyer's list, and if you look at any major metropolitan area, it usually has a handful of REO agents that dominate that area. Is it a bad idea to take one of those guys to lunch or gals to lunch and get on their list and? A lot of them know the bank-owned property that's coming their way before it even hits. Yeah, we had Mark Ferguson back on episode two, and he was a big REO agent. He said he was doing upwards of 200 REO deals a year. Yeah, it's a volume play, and it's a little different animal. It's different ways I used to go, different strategies I had to go attack buying REO property or bank-owned property. I used to do some, I don't say crazy things, but... There's a lot more I'd like to talk to you about. So we'll have to have you back on the show another time to discuss some of those other topics. But I really enjoyed our conversation today. And I know the audience is going to get a lot of value out of it. It's not something that I think a lot of there's a lot of information out there that a lot of investors are looking at. So I think it's interesting for them to see a different perspective or a different way to invest. So where can the audience go to learn more about you and connect with you? Probably the easiest is uh, PPRNoteCo.com is our company website. Or we do have a distressed mortgages group on LinkedIn. And I'm always on Bigger Pockets. actually answer questions on Bigger Pockets almost daily. I'll be sure to put links to all the different things that Dave and I talked about throughout the conversation in the show notes, as well as all the resources that he just mentioned so that you can go connect with them further. And as always, I'll put books that are related to these topics in the show notes. You guys can go check that out as well. Dave, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was fun being on. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. 
That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.